So is there a vitalistic force? This question has come up independently multiple times across humanity. And the answer has been no. So the first question one has to ask is if New Zealand thinks that there is something more to say about this, it has to be prepared to provide that evidence to the rest of the world because the current consensus in the rest of the world is there is no such force. Welcome to The Shape of Dialogue. Today I have Professor Anthony Paul from the University of Auckland. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's fantastic to have you on. We're going to be having a discussion, uh, this ongoing discussion that I'm having on the podcast about the relationship between mataranga Māori, which is uh, can be translated to traditional Māori knowledge, and science and you are a scientist. First of all, do you want to just tell us a bit about yourself, your background, how you became a scientist, and what you actually do as a scientist? Right. So uh, uh, this I could probably go on for a while. So the area of science I'm interested in is molecular evolution, and the particular questions that I burn for is understanding how early life evolved on the planet. So we know that we have these Uh, We're all made up of these complex cells uh, that have genetic material, some mechanism for reading the information in that. And uh, the commonalities between uh, all life forms is something that's been discovered in the really in the latter half of the 20th century. So it's quite a a stunning set of discoveries. And the work I'm uh, most interested in is trying to really understand how that may have happened. Uh, Even something is apparently simple as a cell has all this complexity it didn't just appear what were the early steps that allowed you know the modern version of cells to arise in terms of my background i'd say i have a fairly varied background i I studied uh i did my undergraduate work uh at uh, massey university in palmerston north before taking a scholarship uh to Spent two years in a research lab in Japan uh, at the University of Tokyo, and that was for me quite a uh, an important period of my life. I was um, I'm half Japanese, and it was an opportunity for me to learn more about my mother's culture uh, and uh, really maybe have some firsthand experience of living uh, in Japan. I'd lived there as a very young child, but um, primarily have uh, grown up in English-speaking countries. Uh, and then I went back to New Zealand and did my PhD with David Penny at Massey University. And uh, during that time, I actually ended up spending a couple of years in Sweden. And uh, to cut a long story short, I've lived in Sweden for about seven years. So while I developed reasonable Japanese skills while living in Japan, my Swedish is actually better than my Japanese because I had to work in a university setting uh, in the Swedish language. So I've I've studied science in three different languages and cultures, so English, Japanese, and uh, Swedish. Uh, so it's very interesting to me to think about the the interface between culture and language and knowledge, because I've perhaps more than many practicing scientists had to confront that by changing the, uh, the language that I operate in in order to uh, undertake my research. Right, yeah. Well, they often say language is a prism which we sort of conjure up how we think and how we approach the world. 
would just going down on that on that route would you say that's the case from your experience or, or maybe maybe the, you know put it as a question how does language affect how we think i think less than we think it does so there is a a general sense that you know people will say things like oh you just can't say this in another language uh my experience and from what i've my wife's actually uh, trained as a linguist what i've understood from looking at the knowledge that she brings to conversations um is that this really doesn't hold up so it's sort of a bit of a, a language myth it's actually called the sapir wolf hypothesis and the idea is sort of that because people can say things in in a language the language is the driver of our understanding so sort of a classic example is that if you look at languages across the planet there are different ways of describing colors so for instance in japanese there's not traditionally a, a separate word for green and blue so we have a word called uh, which is ao which means can be green or blue uh, and the distinction is not there but the the suggestion that you cannot see the color green or you cannot distinguish the color green or blue doesn't hold up to any meaningful scrutiny what we understand about how our eyeballs work and how the you know light is filtered and 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 understood by our brains has no bearing on whether we choose to put a marker in place so the genetics of our eyes is a species it's identical the fact that we've cho chosen to mark something doesn't mean that we can't see certain wavelengths it just means we we've chosen you know for something that is a spectrum chosen particular ways of discretizing that so i don't think language has as big a bearing on our understanding of the world as we think it does i've learned that the way that you approach saying something may differ but i guess to flip it if if we think that language is somehow the key thing then it would suggest that there are certain things that you cannot uh express in your own language that you would be limited and other people are able to express that and there was no way for us to understand that but the history of translating languages the fact that we're watching dramas from places like korea on places in in these sort of new environments like netflix tells us that uh human thought is much more accessible than than this sort of idea that somehow we we can't explain things in other languages yeah well you know there's a there's a type of thinking that makes a lot out of cultural differences but the thing i think the the weakness in that thought is that the main thing that we all have in common is that we're all biologically human so the things that differ tend to be marginal yeah i i guess it depends what we mean by marginal one's culture is sort of defining of oneself in many ways the norms of our societies and so on are, are driven by these things so so for certain uh phenomena perhaps our, our culture is you know not not directly important to our understanding of that uh, phenomenon but in other ways you know it's everything about how we how we decide to interact with other humans our facial expressions our body language uh these things are different between cultures and we we understand them as providing us with signals one of the biggest challenges of learning another culture is realizing that some facial expressions that you make or some forms of body language uh while they're intended to be friendly in your culture may be considered quite rude or um you know inappropriate in another culture so yeah we're constantly having to navigate this this path where where culture is all around us we take a lot of it for granted and we 
uh, make judgments on the basis of our understanding of what, what's acceptable and what's not. So the real challenge for the scientist is, is how much of that can we put aside in order to understand those aspects of the world that perhaps don't depend on culture. Yeah. Well, I think that the fact that we're now global culture says a lot to how we can uh, rise above each individual culture. I mean, I've traveled a lot. I haven't been everywhere in the world, but um, from my experience, humans are human, although there are obviously differences in, you know, in the way we manifest our cultures. Can we just talk, because I'm absolutely fascinated by what you do, what you study. Are we getting close to working out how life was created? Because to me, that it's sort of the ultimate question. It would probably be one of the hardest questions in the universe. Yeah, and I think it's one of the things that unites us as a species. One thing that we do that you know, other species don't do is that in certain circumstances, when the conditions are right, we've maybe we had a, you know, we've got uh, a full stomach and we're able to uh, think about things and, and not be distracted by you know, the everyday challenges of, of life. You know, our minds can wander and every society, every civilization has asked this question, how, how did we get here? You know, what is, what is the world? Uh, and to me, you know, that's, that is a fundamental human trait to ask those questions. What science has allowed us to do is apply a range of tools from different areas of science to try and understand those. So we've certainly in the last hundred years come much, much further than, you know, maybe looking back on it, it, it's quite astonishing what we've learned in the last hundred years about the nature of life and its origins. So in the mid fifties, we discovered DNA in the 1960s, we worked out how the code of DNA was operated, but also that it was universal, that it was what was true for a bacterium was also true for an organism such as ourselves. And of course, this has been, uh, this knowledge has been applied in important ways, for example, in production of um, human insulin using bacteria. Uh, that's possible because the code uh, is universal. We've learned that all life almost certainly uh, derives from a single origin. Uh, we don't have evidence uh, of a second origin of life. Yeah, we understand that yeah, the fundamental architecture of life uh, is common to, to uh, every living organism on the planet. And that's uh, there's still more to do, but there's good sort of picture emerging of the broad brush strokes. It's still very hard to say how life got started. That's that's a very difficult question. But uh, the progress that's happened in the last hundred years or so is is quite astonishing. Yeah, well, this is what blows my mind is the amount of knowledge that we have accumulated through the scientific method, and it is it is reaching an exponential point, isn't it? Yeah, I'd say there's always ebbs and flows. One runs into uh, barriers mm. and, and difficulties. But, you know, I thought about this recently, just thinking about the um, what we've been going through with the pandemic. And as, as somebody with a training in molecular biology, and I, I, I um, I'm aware of, of uh, the technologies that are involved in, in our response to the uh, pandemic. Uh, and if one looks back to... 100 years ago when we had the last pandemic, the, the influenza pandemic, it's uh, astonishing how much we've learned in that 100 years. So for example, so 1918, we had the, you know, the influenza pandemic, 
and then 100, almost 100 years exactly later, we've, we've had a, a pandemic caused by another virus. So we talk about the 1918 pandemic as if we knew about the influenza virus, but we didn't actually know what viruses were. We hadn't discovered them at that point. Nobody knew what the causative agent of the pandemic was. The leading thinking at the time was that it was uh, one of a number of bacteria that it turns out were associated with secondary infection. We didn't have any mechanism to discover viruses at that point. Fast forward now, we've discovered, seven years ago, we discovered DNA. 50 years ago, we discovered how to sequence DNA. Probably about 30, 40 years ago, we just, we figured out how to do PCR, which of course everybody's heard of as a mechanism for testing. Uh, we worked out how the immune system works and that allowed us to develop things like these rat tests you know that was sort of mid 20th century discoveries we started sequencing genomes in the in the mid 90s you know and we've you know we we also under, uh, discovered viruses after the pandemic so if we were to try and respond to the 2019 uh, pandemic with the tools we had in 1918 they, they're tools of science but they were really not very good compared to what we have now. So that really underscores that progress. So yeah, I would agree with you that there is there is progress, but uh, and it's ast astonishing. But in any field, there are always ebbs and flows. There are times when you sort of get stuck uh, on a question. And actually, one of the things that underscores that shift of, of our understanding was uh, really the mid 20th century physicists and chemists in particular came into biology and really shook it up and so a lot of those things that i've just described were driven out of a bit of a revolution in biology uh, moving away from sort of naturalist approaches to categorizing things and so on to to really getting at the chemistry of life yeah i heard heard this on on the internet so it must be true but um <laughs> um in the t time it took us to create the vaccine for the coronavirus, in the Black Death in, in the Middle Ages in Europe, half of Europe had died. Right. So the plague and the coronavirus are not the same thing, but never, nevertheless, it just shows you how things have changed. The rate that we are increasing our knowledge of the world and our understanding of, of how everything fits together is... Um, you know, is why we put science on a pedestal. Um, anyway, but um, so it's a, it's a very powerful thing, science. Critics of science would say it has negative impacts. What would you say to that? Sure. Like any area of human endeavour, when humans apply knowledge, we can apply it in good or bad or in different ways, uh, sometimes to devastating effect. And certainly for me, being of Japanese heritage, the, the people often raise the, the dropping of the, um, the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki as uh, an example where science has um, created something terrible. Uh, you could say, well, there's a lot of complexity in terms of the good and the bad with, with nuclear weapons. But, you know, it's certainly harrowing to think that, a, that we've created a, a single bomb that can kill, you know, 100,000 people in the blink of an eye. That's, of course, the application of knowledge. It's not that scientists necessarily are building bombs as their primary 
activity. It's rather that, that technology is enabled through progress. And this is true. You know, humans have been building weapons since, uh, you know, for probably a good couple of hundred thousand years or more. So we're, we're quite good at that. It's provided us with ways to hunt. It's provided us with ways to do terrible things like wipe each other out. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily specific to science. It's specific to humans. And we probably need to distinguish those two things. Yeah, well, it just made me think, in a sense, given the human brain, the knowledge we've accumulated is inevitable. So it's inevitable that, that Rutherford would have split the atom and then you know re- that ended up resulting in a, a neutron bomb because essentially the the biology of our of our brains. So to criticize finding out knowledge is actually is actually there's a weakness in that argument as I, as I see it. Because these things are there on a sort of a continuum of you know, knowledge accumulation, and the things we find out are the things we find out, and then, then as you said, we merge them with the human character, which at times can be nefarious. Yeah, I don't think it's inevitable uh, because I mean, you asked about culture before. Cultures and societies can make dis- decisions that turn them away from scientific endeavour. Um, yes, you know, one of the most fascinating stories in respect to that for you know that i've read about of course is what happened in china 500 years ago Mm. 500 years ago china was uh technologically arguably the most advanced uh, nation on the planet Uh, according to accounts that i've read one of the leading things that stymied the continued progression of science was uh bureaucratic decisions to move away from it you know and that has had, um, I would say, disastrous impacts on on science development, probably both nationally within China, but also internationally, given how successful they were in the past. Uh, Of course, there are a series of civilizations across the world, including in parts of what's now the Middle East, that were uh, the key drivers of uh, you know the frontiers of, of knowledge, and some of those places have ceased to be leaders in science for for you know a number of reasons, uh, and have taken on very in some cases very anti scientific views. So maybe science as a global endeavor has overall succeeded, but who's been the driver of that is is not inevitable. Humans can turn away from it, and subsequent generations may regret that. That's a really great point, and I think it leads us into what we're here to discuss, because I view what the proposals in the education system and in the science curriculum, at to a certain extent, are being anti-scientific. Now, you wrote an article. It's called, um, you wrote, it's in the conversation. I'll link it in the show notes for anyone who wants to read it. It's called Japan's Path to Becoming a Leader in Western Science, an Asian Perspective on Science and Other Forms of Knowledge. Do you want to just talk about what you said in that article? Yeah, sure. So obviously, we're having this conversation in New Zealand around, primarily around the curriculum changes to NCEA as part of a pilot program to alter the science curriculum. Uh, So the idea of introducing ideas from Mataranga Māori into 
the science curriculum in schools also had the same kinds of conversations being started around university uh, science curricula. So it's very important from my perspective to have a conversation about this. And I think one of the things that I've always struggled with in New Zealand is that it's sort of, I guess, the bicultural aspect of the way our society thinks of itself. There are two groups uh, and sometimes they have a, a disagreement on things, but there are sort of two points of view. And I, you know, in the, in the time that I've grown up in New Zealand, we've changed from a bicultural nation to one that's got a very high diversity of people from different places. I live in Auckland. There are apparently 160 odd languages spoken in this city. It's a hyper diverse city. You know, my family, we, we have four languages that are usable at home. Uh, I guess we only primarily use two. Yeah. Uh, but, you're, you're just you're just showing off <laughs> but i think this is not that unusual that's the thing that yeah. i'm trying to say uh so yeah. what that brings is an opportunity to learn from uh more than just these two groups and the thinking and so i wanted to provide that because part of the opportunity that i had while i was studying science in other countries was to learn about their perceptions of science and their history of science and japan is a very interesting case because after it, it had a period of extended civil war uh, called the Warring States period. And following that, one, one group kind of came out on top and there was a period of about 250 years of peace. And that peace was, uh, I guess, very central to the development of a lot of uh, what we would recognize as modern day Japanese culture, uh, these sort of woodblock paintings that, uh, you know, sort of the the great wave uh, that you would have seen, uh, these types of things are, are from that era. So there was a great flourishing of, of culture. But at the same time, the country was very heavily controlled politically. And as part of that, there was a, a policy of uh, something called Sakoku, closed country. And so the country was had closed its doors. So we've had our doors closed for a couple of years, but this is sort of a couple of hundred years of being closed. And very few people were able to come in. Uh, so Europeans were traveling around by this stage and they were interacting with uh, the, the cultures and the nations that they uh, came into contact with. But just, in the case just of... Tell, sorry. Sorry, just tell us what, what year we're talking about? Well, the this... 1500s? Yeah, this is, I guess, um, I, I would have to look up the actual date of when the uh, the Warring States period right. ended, okay. but, but in the right. sort of maybe around the 1600s. Yeah. And then um, yeah. uh, Japan was forced to open up in the uh, middle of the 1800s, 1853, by the arrival of uh, Commodore Perry and the US Navy. But before then, there was limited contact. Uh, and what I'm writing about is that though the sort of beginnings of change that happened. So there was a, there's a famous island offshore of uh, modern day Nagasaki called Dejima. And that island was the only place that certain Westerners were able to come to. So primarily the Dutch East India Company was able to go there and trade. And one of the reasons for the closed country was that Japan saw Christianity as a real threat. And it wanted to keep the ideas of Christianity at arm's length. Uh, it didn't want those the missionaries converting its its populace uh, and 
It saw it as a, this is a very dangerous thing to allow into the country. But this, uh, this also yielded a, an interesting interaction because at the time of the sort of closed country, foreign books were banned. Uh, and they st slowly started in the 1600s um, uh, and through to the 1700s, started to, to shift their view on this. So we started allowing books to, to come into uh, Japan, provided they weren't on topics that were problematic. So I think from 1720, foreign books that weren't on religious topics were allowed to get into the country. And so I write about a, an event that happened in the 1770s in what is now modern-day Tokyo, where a group of physicians go to an execution. So in those days, um, it was customary that, uh, you know, individuals that had been sufficiently badly behaved could be put to death. And so there is a, uh, a story about a, a woman um, called Al-Jababa, and that sort of roughly, I guess, translates as old tea lady or old tea hag even. It's not a particularly nice term but her she she's famous for uh in science because it was her execution that these physicians went to and they went armed with a um japanese text on anatomy that was derived originally from chinese uh, thinking and a dutch book and of course the only books they could get hold of in those days were dutch because the only people they would interact with from the west were the dutch the chinese still had access but because they weren't the problem and of course Japan had received a, a large influx of knowledge from China in the past. But they went to compare these two books. And what they realized that at this execution, as the ex executioner was dissecting the body and laying out all the parts, they realized, oh, gee, the, the stuff these Dutch guys know, they could really only tell from the pictures because they couldn't read Dutch. These guys know more about the human body than we do. And there's a sort of nice little quote uh, from a, a translation of uh, a book that one of the, the uh, physicians wrote, a guy called um, Sugita Genpaku. He's, he's, he's written as follows. He said, on our way home, we talked about the strong impression this made on us. That's the execution. We were ashamed of having lived so far in such complete ignorance and served our lords day after day as physicians without the slightest idea of the true configuration of the body whereas this should have been considered the foundation of our art. So what these, uh, what this sort of view that Sugita is providing here is the sort of the horror that a scientist, a person who thinks as a scientist, when they discover I've been wrong on something really important that I should have known. And so, of course, they immediately decided to dedicate their work to understanding the Dutch language, translating this book, uh, and trying to learn as much as they possibly could from a source that they realized possessed superior knowledge about something that they knew was really important to the to the health of the people that they were serving. And of course, in those days, they served lords because it was a very hierarchical society. Yeah, well, I think that is the ultimate beauty of, of science is that to acknowledge, freely acknowledge when you're wrong and and change course onto the onto a more correct path when that knowledge is presented just as an aside i think what's so fascinating about that story is anyone can cut up a body and and draw pictures of what's there but somehow that hadn't happened which is quite interesting yeah i guess that's true i um and and and, and so we can be blinded essentially by 
what the, the knowledge from the past says, and we take that as, as essentially as a dogma. Which, yeah, I mean, which certainly ha- as which, I understand yeah. it, there, there wasn't, you know, dissections by physicians were not allowed, and this is why they chose right. to go to an execution. Uh, yeah. So they couldn't perform their own studies, but they could watch something that I guess the average person would consider fairly gruesome uh, and, yeah. and learn in this indirect way. Yeah, so essentially it's a, a, a bureaucratic edict which was actually slowing the pace of knowledge for these physicians. Yes, you could say that in multiple ways, including the closed country, the insular thinking. Yep. Uh, that was that yep. was hugely damaging, I think, to Japan. In yeah, many ways. just very, just very parochial in their outlook. Yeah, so closed. I mean, again, going back to the the beauty of science, and uh, I apologise to my audience for raving about how great science is, but it's the difference between a closed system and an open system. Closed systems, if you look historically. Um, and even now, I mean, you only have to go to North Korea. Um, closed systems are inherently flawed because they they they're constrained by past knowledge, where an open system is always open to uh, to change. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, for for science, we we um, and the progress that we've observed in the last hundred years, as I outlined, in terms of pandemic response across a hundred year gap, you know that worked because of open science there have been some disastrous missteps in some parts of the world in that time uh perhaps the most um, famous or infamous was what happened to genetics in russia and uh an episode involving a a guy called trofim lysenko so of course russia under the uh, rule of uh, communists developed some ideas that you know exist in the uh elsewhere as well but around the idea that sort of rather than it being the genetics the genetics is malleable we can change it and that uh, we can change the environment or the conditions and this will lead to uh, changes in the biology so the biology rather than being some sort of fixed thing is alterable through changes in environment so uh, you know Lysenko argued that he could increase you know, crop yields in what is now uh, modern-day Ukraine uh, through uh, his methods. They were completely untried. This is exactly what the leadership of the, you know, the Communist Party wanted to hear, of course. Uh, and those geneticists who argued against him were disposed of in the ways that, you know, ways that are unthinkable in, in our societies. You know, often sent off to various camps and so on. Effectively, uh, if not you know outright killed, then killed very slowly and painfully. And this set genetics back in Russia very, very much. So it's this idea that that the progress has been without you know sort of been I guess inevitable and without sort of backtracking or individual countries going down the wrong path and finding that. You know, that an ideological driver has has uh, usurped science. This has happened, and it's happened to disastrous effect. Uh, this, you know, this is not unlinked to the starvation and deaths of millions of Russians in the 20th century, and that was really driven by an ideology based on an interpretation of science without any evidence, uh, which was counter to the body of knowledge of genetics that we had at the time. Yeah, and I think the key thing is also that there was no 
discourse enabled. So discourse was shut down. And mm. is my understanding that one of the key elements of science is the the free and open exchange of ideas. So I can make a proposal. You can come hammer and nails at it and attack it and disprove it. If I was in a position of power in an authoritarian regime, and that would hurt my my ego, so I may not allow it. So then you have that situation which you just outlined, where yeah, as as my understanding, you know, millions of of people died in starvation yes, throughout right. throughout that period in in Russia. So again, it it resonates with what you mentioned about both with Japan and with China's sort of downfall um, from from a high technological and scientific status. And, you know, again, this is my concern about this discussion in New Zealand. So that brings us to the discussion about this interaction between Mataranga Māori and science and how that is instantiated in the education system, in particular in the science classroom. A document you refer to in your article is something from the Ministry of Education and it is entitled What is Chemistry and Biology? In it, they talk about a concept called Mori, M-A-U-R-I, and I'm going to read a definition from the Māori Dictionary.co.nz website, and it says, Life principle, life force, vital essence, special nature, a material symbol of a life principle, source of emotions, the essential quality and vitality of a being or entity, also used for a physical ob- object, individual, ecosystem, or social group in which this essence is located. So as far as I understand, it is a claim about the universe that says there is a fundamental life force in all living matter. Now, before we continue on what this article says, what are your comments about this concept of Mori? Yeah, I think that uh, for me, the interesting thing, and I draw this comparison in my article, Mori, as the Māori consider it, is very similar to, or probably close to indistinguishable from the, the Japanese word ki, Chinese word chi. There are a lot of cultures that have thought about a life force. And I think there's two very interesting things to consider here. So one is whether or not there is a uh, an identifiable life force that uh, should be applied to chemistry and biology. Um, and this is something that has been interesting in, try- in terms of trying to understand the origin of life, for example. What was the, some people's talk about the spark of life or what was it what is it that distinguishes chemistry from biology and we don't have an answer that indicates that there is an additional life force we don't have a an answer sorry just sorry just on that is an additional life force beyond chemistry and biology is that's really what there is no force that we could call a life force in either chemistry or biology there's chemistry and then there's the maybe the subset of chemistry that uh, gives rise to biology, um, but there is no specific force associated with biology. So this was an idea um, called vitalism, and you know that's been, uh, uh, I guess, moved away from in 
the sciences because uh you know of course in, in the west as well people argue that there must be some sort of vital force and there just has been no identification of that so uh i think it's i would say it's a little bit of a disservice to the term modi or or a term like key to try and force it in there where it doesn't belong i don't think that's what its role is in uh the societies that use this um you know and sorry, we, we have all right sorry yeah. you mean force force it into this into science. into the science into curriculum this. yeah yeah so in the science into, curriculum, really into science itself yeah they're essentially saying it's the science it is scientific because if they're teaching yeah, it in the science classroom it must be scientific yeah and i don't know that um this is a, a universally held view i think it's transposing a a a set of important values a certain term that has a broad range of uses into forcing it into an area that i don't think it ever actually inhabited so that's that's to me the fallacy it's not the word modi itself that's the problem it's not a term like key so i talk about that where i say you know i say that arguing for modi in this specifically vitalistic sense that there is an identical life force is um problematic for science it just doesn't work but of course we we can understand the cultural values that are inherent in that term and i point out in, in um that this is the same in in parts of east asia including japan where you know we use the word key we use that all the time in everyday language so if i was to say you know take care uh i would say uh the phrase kiyotsukete which means if you were to kind of literally translate that using the word modi you would say you know switch on your modi you know be careful out there you know so you have to have your your key switched on be aware of your you know go safely and be aware of your surroundings and this is a you know it's a it's a wonderful to a way of describing you know saying goodbye to somebody but that's nothing to do with science and nobody who's really thought about this is trying to conflate the two so i i think the problem isn't so much with the Ma- the maori term moody i think the problem with it is the specific intent to try and make it into something that it's not uh and that's a that's a mistake everyday use of of the term modi in a non-scientific cultural context and borrowing that word into english is fine and that's a that's a separate usage yeah well in in a sense science doesn't have anything to say about that yeah how how people speak and interact is is, an, is another matter mm. can i quote some some of these the moments where in this article from the ministry mm. of education where it talks about mori okay here's the first quote the living world strand is about the mori of living things and how they interact as part of the taiao now um i hope i've got that pronunciation of the word taiao that is essentially the the world the earth the natural uh, environment uh, you know i'm going to sort of bang on about this but because i find it rather perplexing to be totally honest in this article from or this yeah this article this paper from the ministry of education they are talking about mori and how it interacts with the world they they actually s- stating it as a scientific claim as far as i can see another another one here's another one from the same article chemistry al- allows us to predict how substances may alter when the surrounding conditions change how they react 
to form new substances and how the mori of the taiao is affected when this happens. As, I, as far as I understand this, they're going to be teaching this to children that there is such a thing as mori. Here's another one. Any change in the balance of these interactions will resultantly impact the mori of everything in the system, be it an ecosystem or a living organism. Here's another one. Any chemical may have positive or negative impacts on the mori of the taiao. What are your reactions to these statements? Um, well, I, I felt reading them, I felt prompted to write something, which is what drove me to write the, the article I did on Japan's history and becoming a scientific leader. I think we have to really avoid this um, confusion of, of what, what is culture and what is science and what is the most useful way of describing something. So I'll try and unpack that for you because I think that you know it's legitimate that people have done this thought, uh, thought this through in, in other places. So is there a vitalistic force? This question has come up independently multiple times across humanity. And the answer has been no. So the first question one has to ask is if New Zealand thinks that there is something more to say about this, it has to be prepared to uh, provide that evidence to the rest of the world because the current consensus in the rest of the world is there is no such force. So my first question would be, if we're putting this somewhere as fundamental as the school science curriculum, what is the evidence underpinning that? Because that's a pretty big claim. Yeah, just on that thing, is it, is it Stephen Jay Gould who said extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence? Yes, I don't know who, who the source of the yeah. quote is, but uh, yeah. yeah, this is certainly a, a case where, okay, as a scientist, I'm highly sceptical about this. Show me your evidence. I think what's happening is actually it's a misguided attempt to try and show respect for Maori culture. I'd say overall, you know, this is a different question. It's an important question. Maori culture is, is very integral to New Zealand and is very important. But what this will ultimately do is create the conditions where somebody can belittle Maori culture. And I don't think that's the intent of the, the authors of this. But if you're trying to put up something like Modi as being equivalent to science, one, I, you know, I think the, the evidence just isn't there and it will create a a backlash that's not fair on those Maori kids you're trying to include in science. There are better ways to do that. And I think the second part of this is really to do with how do we reach kids? How do we make them interested in science? How can we encourage them by mixing ideas that don't fit naturally with science? I, I think you're more likely to turn those students off of science. The debates in the classroom or the attitude of the teacher may be uh, to this type of stuff being inserted in may actually create the opposite effect. And that to me is exactly what we don't want to do. So I'm, I'm concerned about that. Well, you know, I can imagine, it, uh, it's not too hard to imagine a very intelligent young Māori 15 year old um, putting their hand up and saying, excuse me, how does this, this, this is essentially a religious claim about the universe or so where is the evidence? For this claim, hmm. and, and what and what is what is the teacher going to say in that 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 situation? There is no evidence for it. 
where if they if they said what is the evidence for the molecular structure of water H2O they can you know they can rattle off all the evidence for that so again what i find fascinating is how is this a scientific claim how can you teach a non-scientific claim in a scientific classroom and the other thing i thought about they would not have written the following sentence. I'm just going to quote the same sentence and insert a different word. The living world strand is about the Holy Spirit of living things and how they interact with the environment. So if you replace Māori with the word Holy, you know, the concept of the Holy Spirit, which in a sense by the, I mean, I don't know much about the Holy Spirit, but it sounds a similar thing. It is quite clear that that's just a nonsensical uh, statement. Yeah, and I don't think it gives uh, Modi or Maori culture the respect it deserves, and this is where I, I, I have concerns. So that's why in my article I, I raised this. I've actually written a longer version of this that is available on a um, website called OpenInquiry.nz. Okay, um, we'll we'll I'll put that in the show. The link. But yeah, I, we'll put I, in the show notes. I specifically talked about. Um, an idea that's uh, originated with Stephen Jay Gould, something he called non-overlapping magisteria. And so he you know, wrote a, a very interesting article on this, and he's more or less arguing that look, there's religion and the science, and they're really non-overlapping. One deals with facts and theories, and the other one with moral meaning and value. There are some points of interaction. What he sort of said is that, you know, they interdigitate in wondrously complex ways along their joint border, but they're distinct. And what they do in terms of how they serve society is distinct. I know you were talking with um, uh, a previous guest about, you know, that, that people can have views that are that are religious and still be practicing scientists. And this is a way to say, well, okay, I can value my own culture, but I understand where the boundaries are between these two, and what what roles these these serve in society. So forcing them in, exactly as you said, with the we've done this, uh, we've had this debate, and we we continue to have this debate over the relationship between Christian uh, thinking or or um, Islamic teachings and science. I, I don't see any value to lifting up young Maori scientists and in, in confusing the non-scientific parts of Maori culture with the scientific parts of the science curriculum. I don't think this helps. And that's kind of why I then said, well, why don't we explore this idea of this interdigitating border? There's some really interesting cases. Sorry, can you define what, I can't even say it. Well, I think it's just saying there are some blurry, there's some blurred lines, there's some bits where maybe science and, and culture interact and we need to understand. And those are specific to particular environments. And so the example, one of the examples I give in my, I give a couple of examples. A cultural example I give in my um, article is to do with a little monument called Kinzuka uh, on the grounds of a temple in Kyoto called Manshuin. And so this is an interesting little mound that if you were to visit Manchu and you wouldn't actually easily find it, set off out, slightly outside the the, um, the the formal temple grounds. It's called, I guess the English translation would be microbe mound. And there's a, there's a little picture of it in my, um, my article. And it's got an inscription by a microbiologist, a guy called uh, Sakaguchi Kinichiro. 
he's a noted microbiologist and has uh, invented a specific flask that bears his name, the Sakaguchi flask. And it's it, this is a very Japanese response to doing microbiological science. So the, he's, there's an inscription on the back of this that says, so the innumerable souls of microbes who have dedicated and sacrificed for the existence of humans, we pay our deepest respect. Here we hold a memorial service for their soul's rest and condolence, building a microbe mound. Now, if I was to unpick that, I'd say, okay, no microbe has dedicated anything. Uh, it's been grown and it's had to sort of deal with the fact that uh, humans put it in an environment. It's, uh, they don't have a soul that's going to rest and feel sort of at peace after having been tortured by a microbiologist in a lab. But what, an, what, an, an, an evil microbiologist. Yeah. yeah. I, so, so I would sort of, with my rational mind, I'd say, well, this is silly, isn't it? But as a scientist visiting this and as somebody who's got some training in microbiology, I, I was taken there my, by uh, my Kyoto collaborators. And I was told that all members of the lab are expected to visit this. So this is a, a little excursion. Usually you go out in the, in the morning with a group of students and postdocs and young scientists. Um, visit this. Uh, we go and, go and go to the temple and have a look around, visit the, the mound. And it's a way to sort of think a little bit. So we, we went there, we prayed for the success of the collaboration. So the interesting thing about Japan is Japan is really not a particularly religious place. It's a very superstitious place. And so that's part of the culture of Japan. And you're going there and, and it's an opportunity to reflect and think. But there's no real requirement. You must You must follow this. You must pray. You must, you know, it's just sort of a... A ritual, if you like, uh, in the same way that you know some people might, uh, who are um, atheists, still enjoy listening to you know the beautiful music that you hear if you go into a church and the feeling of calm that you might get. But then I think the really interesting thing is if you go into a laboratory, a Japanese microbiology laboratory, that stuff is not part of the everyday activities at all. Um, so that's re it's really sort of a a bonding or a, or a chance to sort of get away from the lab and, and, and think a little bit. Um, but uh, the protocols are the same. The methods are the same. We can swap and share these. Sometimes we have to translate a few bits here and there so that the, the collaborating labs can understand one another. But, you know, the science part is universal. So this is sort of a human way of, of responding to something. And this one is particularly Japanese. Maybe there are other places that do similar things. And that's really one of the ways that culture and, and science can sit along one, uh, aside one another, but, but still be kept separate. So I don't think there's yeah. a conflict there. Yeah, well, my, my you know, thought that just popped into my head, in a sense, you, you, what you're saying is these concepts, like something like Māori, in a sense, are more poetic. Yeah, I think in a sense they're they're, they're integral to our culture, but um, mm. yeah, they don't sort of have the, the to... poetry of the culture. And and again, mm. you know, like in in English, we use the word spirit, and you know, I'm 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 in a I'm a, a an atheist, and you know, I'm not enamoured by the claims of religions at, at all. But you know, I'll I'll say um, I'll use the the word spirit. You know, that person has a great spirit, or um, it's a, a sort of a, a poetic term that's a, that's quite hard to define. 
but yeah. um, I would never encourage um, the you know a, a scientific inquiry in, in teaching fifteen year olds um, into what the spirit is um, in a scientific way, or ma- or just make uh, and essentially random claims, you know, that this thing exists without any evidence. Yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, I guess the reason I raised that first case is I think. Uh, you can have th- things that sort of ha- have a, a, a cultural or a spiritual element. And as long as they are kept separate in, in regards to the actual doing of your research, it's it's not, uh, you know, that's fine. Yeah. I don't think there's a so problem you, with you, that. You can be a hardcore Muslim or Christian or Hindu, and you can work alongside a hardcore atheist in the yeah, science laboratory yeah. and, as long and, as and you doing the same thing yeah yeah because yeah. uh, yeah. you because you because yeah. you're, you're speaking the same a uh, universal international language yeah uh, so i gave a then i gave an example and i've got one more as one i'd like to raise so the i i talked about one of the things the lab i'm collaborating with um at kyoto has done which is really interesting is that they've studied how traditional indigo dyeing uh works so uh, this is a uh, a very well-known form of cloth dyeing in Japan, something called aizome. And this has been done for a very long time, but it turns out when you look into it, it actually is done through an oxidative fermentation. And it uses leaves of the Japanese indigo plant. And then there's this interesting process by which the, uh, the indigo is extracted. And this is a microbial fermentation. They're a microbial fermentation lab. So they're like, wow, that's interesting. How does it work? And the point I just try to explain in my article is that the, there's, there's the artisan's approach, which is I'm going to make something using this dye. I'm going to get it out of the, the plant, and I know how to do that. And I can do this. I don't need to talk to a scientist to do this. I can, you know, and I'm a craftsperson. I can produce something incredible uh, that people will uh, enjoy. I don't really need to know the details of how that works. The scientists immediately go, how does that work? That's really interesting. What's going, what microbes are there? What are they doing? And so that's what they sought to, to find out. And it's like, well, what's, what's the microbial community that's doing this? How does the chemistry underlying the extraction process work? And then they, they then took that knowledge. So that's the basic knowledge of you know, understanding how something that humans are doing works. And then they said, well, what else can we do with that? And they built a microbial fuel cell from this, which is you know, quite incredible. It's got nothing to do with the original uh, dying, but it's inspired by being curious about something happening, you know, a local tradition that, that turns out to have an element that can be uh, understood as a scientist. And none of this improves or, or alters the traditional artisan's uh, approach. You know, they're still going to carry on with their very successful age-old uh, methods, but it's given us something new, and and we can play around with that and, and try and build something that might be useful in some other domain, which is amazing. I think, but maybe that and one example that I didn't talk about because I was talking about Japan is a Chinese example. Perhaps the best example I can think of is the work by a Chinese uh, medical scientist called um, Tu Yu Yu, and she won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of an anti-malarial called uh, artemisinin. And that was derived from traditional uh, remedies in Chinese medicine, from 
wormwood, use of wormwood for uh, symptoms that when she read the original traditional text, it sounded very much like the symptoms associated with malaria. Uh, what she was able to do was to isolate the active component that uh, could be used as, as a modern medicine, thereby taking the traditional knowledge and making it fit for the, the standards of the modern world, where we have very high standards around pharmaceuticals and so on. Uh, you know, and that's an incredible breakthrough and a, a success story of where traditional knowledge has given rise to uh, new life-saving, globally important knowledge. But of course, if you were to look at traditional medicines, including Chinese traditional medicines, you still have to sift out the, the cases like that. That'll be what's the next uh, artemisinin from the complete bunk Right, so some of the things that are associated with Chinese remedies, like uh, ground, you know, using tiger penis as a way of providing um, male virility or solving certain issues that men have, turns out to be worse than placebo because it's actually damaging to uh, you know the environment and efforts to keep a, a species that's endangered uh, from from being further exploited. So that's what science does. We say, well, this stuff is, hey, actually, it turns out there's something there. But if there's not, we won't, we can't pretend that there is. That's that's the equivalent of selling snake oil, and and that's not how mm. a scientist will approach this. Mm. So, would you say that traditional knowledge systems don't differentiate between narratives, mythologies, stories, and scientific fact? where science is its main uh, raison d'etre is actually to make those distinctions. Yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't want to cast a broad brush. I don't know about all of the traditional knowledge systems, but I would say that we need to think about science and what it's able, of, able to do as a, as a gift. It's been evolving over the last uh, few thousand years in multiple places and has got to different levels of success and the the modern form that we you know nominally often hear being described as western science is the culmination of a mixture of inputs from all over the world not just western so you know i find the the term western science to be a bit of a misnomer i actually had quotes around that in my article but the, the editor took that away without me noticing so really? so i don't i don't think that there is anything called western science there's just science and any country any culture any person can do it now where would you start if you're going to do science you start at the you know the the modern end of things we we have a lot of discoveries that have been useful that we've chucked away because they're not as good as they were great once, but they're no longer as good as what the you know the state of the art is. Science is very good at distinguishing between something that was a historically important method that well maybe we still talk about it to our students, but at some point we discard it because that method or that approach or that knowledge has been superseded. We're, we're not in the business of worrying about the history, the deep history of it all. Can you can you just give some examples of of that sort of thing? Yeah. Uh, so some of the if if we were having this conversation or if we've been um, let's say we the pandemic had hit in the two um, thousands 
uh, early 2000s, we would have been using a different type of sequencing for doing our genome sequencing than we're using now. That method was fantastic, but it's completely defunct now. We don't, I don't even bother teaching it in my genomics classes because it's just consigned to history. Somebody who's maybe a, a, um, a historian of, of genetics might be interested in it, but it turns out there just aren't any applications for that particular method any longer. Now, somebody might come up with something where we go, actually, we should use that. There's some interesting bits in that, and we'll grab it again and pull it out and use it. But, you know, we discard old methods. So the question has always got to be, well, there's lots of ways of doing this, but what's the best way that we currently have? And when somebody comes up with a better way, we chuck out the old way and go with a a new way. So the fact that somebody might have done something somewhere on the planet that got us to a point is, you know, very historically interesting. But we're always asking, well, is there a better way of doing it? And that's kind of the, the thing that distinguishes science. We do tend to be a little bit um, dismissive of the history. Uh, sometimes, you know, the, we, we have to go and read about it to understand how we got to where we are. We can take it all for granted. Uh, and so those exercises of thinking, well, okay, if we'd, what, what tools did we have 100 years ago when we faced influenza versus uh, coronavirus in, in, you know, the current time? It's, it's interesting to, to understand how far we've come. But that's, that's a very different exercise than saying, well, what tools are we going to use to combat this or the next emerging pathogen or viral threat that comes our way? Mm. So basically, you're saying that science uses the sharpest tools. You know, my, my first computer, I think, had four megabytes of, of memory, right? It was a, a, a Macintosh Plus. The mm-hmm. hard drive was a complete separate unit. Now, in its day, you know, for me in 19, I think it was 1984, I can't remember when it was. What a great thing. It was much better than a pe- pencil and paper for me. But there's no way we could be having this conversation over the internet on that computer. Um, I'm, we're going to be, we're always upgrading our computers. And in a sense, science is always upgrading its knowledge and using the, the sharpest tools at its disposal. Yeah. Um, so going back to, you know, just sort of being devil's advocate here, um, from my reading, and again, you know, could qualify it that I, I could have misread this completely um, incorrectly, but from my reading of this whole discussion, you know, there's a, a line of thinking that's saying, Maori scientific knowledge or technological knowledge has been excluded from the institutions of science. What would your comment to that be? Yeah, I think uh, there's reason to be, you know, to agree with parts of that statement. And what we, for me, what we're looking for, however, are cases like that indigo dying case that I described, or the the anti-malarial case, and not the cases where we're saying let's put this idea that doesn't belong in science into science and force that in through the high school curriculum. So there are, there are ways to do this and there are ways that would, I would say, would push education backwards or, or create a, a division that really shouldn't be there. So I want to know about the, the, the sorts of discoveries that could happen if you start thinking, well, I'm a scientist and I'm really interested. I know about this tradition that my my iwi or my hapu has and i know that there's got to be something scientifically interesting here i don't think anyone's looked at it 
great, we should study those cases. Uh, yes, that's that's the interdigitating border between science and culture. That's different from forcing place, you know, a, a square peg into a round hole. And so we need to be, as part of that conversation, we need to be, I guess, able to make those hard calls. If we're sort of saying, oh, we'll just allow it to be any old way and play an experiment with the entire science curriculum of a nation, that's to me, you know, making some some missteps in our progress in this area. So yeah, by all means, I'd love it if we were to support testing of uh, rongoa, the, the Maori traditional medicines, and and say, well, which ones which ones could we develop into modern drugs that we never would have discovered if it weren't for the fact that we stopped and had a conversation. But at the same time, which of them turn out to be we shouldn't be using them. They shouldn't be a replacement for the the medicines that we have. To do that, we have to be prepared for a worst case scenario where we say, well, maybe none of it works. Uh, that's that's a possible outcome that science would give you. It could be that we get 10 Nobel Prizes. Wow, you know, we don't know the answer till we do it though. So that's a, that's a reasonable thing to do and we should spend some money on those types of things. But we shouldn't do it in a way that says, look, we're not gonna criticize any of the results that come out we're not going to assess them independently. We're just going to say, oh, well done. Uh, this should be done. That's anti-scientific, and I would be against that. But if you say, right, we're going to go, we've got 100 interesting case plants that, that we think could yield new uh, medicinals. How do, we, how do we go about this? What, what's the test that we need to do to you know, fulfill development of something that can be used as a modern pharmaceutical globally? You know, yeah. Let's let's spend that money on that kind of activity if we've we've not yet done that. It's good. I had Dr. Daniel Hikara on an earlier podcast. Um, he is a, he's a geologist, but now he's senior lecturer at the Maori Studies Department at your university, the University mm. of Auckland. Yeah, I know Daniel. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great guy. And I was very grateful for him coming on the podcast because. It's, you know, it's a, strangely, it's quite a brave thing to do in this current environment. Um, and I've said this on the podcast many times before, but, you know, I've been told by multiple people, um, some some quite, uh, you know, well-connected, intelligent people, not to have, not even to have this conversation. But so I'm very grateful for Dan coming on the podcast. But what I'd like to run past you is, is something that he said. He's saying... There are two aspects to Mataranga Māori. There's what's called the upper jawbone and the lower jawbone. And if I've remembered this correctly, the upper jawbone is is the non-scientific aspects of it and the lower jawbone is the scientific aspects. And he used examples, metaphoric examples, such as the god Maui pulling up the North Island from his canoe as an example of Māori understanding that the geological structure of the North Island um, emerged from under the oceans. Uh, he also used the idea of a tanifa to describe things like flooding of a, a river. What are your thoughts on using mythological um, or using myth to metaphorically explain a scientific event? Well, we use metaphor all the time. The question that is more important than the metaphor, the metaphors can be a wonderful way of, of explaining something. 
But when we use metaphor in science, it's usually to provide a, a simple inroad to something more complicated. So what I would ask in that case is, on what data did you know that um, the islands of New Zealand were originally submerged and uh, came up? What knowledge was there that allowed you to make that discovery? You know, and of course there is knowledge that, you know, maybe, maybe there are ways to know this. We know that, you know, early geologists discovered uh, evidence of marine environments in very high up places that, that indicates that, that there had been uplift. But that would be my question is, okay, great. You've got an analogy or a, or a story. What's the underlying data? If that's, you know, scientific in nature, there was particular points of evidence that uh, substantiate that position, then yeah, I think we should all be hearing about that. It's fantastic. But if it's only a story, then you'd say, be, I would say, you know, let's, let's be a little bit careful about not trying to lift that story up and put it in the wrong the wrong place. Uh, we've, we've every society and every culture has got its mythologies and its creation stories and its histories. I talk about that in my article uh, with respect to the. Uh, we have a, a famous uh, with this, yeah probably the, the most famous book, early book that was written was a book in Japan called the Kojiki. Uh, it sort of translates as a record of ancient matters. And it dates to um, around 700, 711. That's our oldest written text. And it describes the genealogy of the imperial family of Japan. It includes written accounts of our oral tradition because until the Chinese came, it appears that Japan didn't have an established writing system of its own. And so they started using Chinese language to write down these uh, oral accounts, the stories, the mythology, our gods. So, uh, and as part of that, this book describes the emperor's uh, genealogy and how it traces back to the sun goddess Amaterasu. Uh, and that it talks about the creation stories of the Japanese archipelago. Now, I know for a, an absolute indisputable fact that the emperor's claim to having a divine genealogy has no basis in scientific fact whatsoever. We know from studies of modern genetics, from linguistics, that this is not true. It doesn't mean that it's not interesting or important. You know, this is a this is central to Japanese culture, and it's it's a wonderful thing to behold. You know, in the same way as if you're from Scandinavia, the stories of the Norse gods are you know great stories. The stories of Thor and Odin and the the Norse gods are also not demonstrable as, as fact. So we keep them as parts of our culture, our history, our heritage, but they, they shouldn't be conflated with scientific ideas. So if we're going to make the comparisons, we have to ask why are we trying to do that and, and on what basis? I guess the final thing I would say is coming back to this point about what's the state of the art. So let's say that some of these stories hold some truths in them and and somebody can point to well it turns out that we knew this we, we claim we knew this i you know that this uh this discovery that is held as a, a piece of knowledge in the modern world we already knew about that that's okay tell us tell us how how it was known that's the interesting part as for me as a scientist as a as a person i'm very interested in the cultural aspects but as a scientist i'm like how did you know this what what was the evidence you used and then the third bit of it is, 
well, is it the best way of understanding this now? Or do we have new tools that have superseded that? In which case, the story belongs in in history classes or a history of science, which you know probably should be taught more than it is. But that's separate from what we now use in the modern era. We've got a lot of practices that saved a lot of lives in the past, for example, in medicine, but have been superseded by improved practices. And the most important pressing matter for somebody studying medicine is mastering the, the current state of the art. Well, that's a beautiful place to end it. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate your time and, and all your thinking on this matter. Thanks very much, Michael. It was a pleasure to talk to you.